Welcome to the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Martha. And our mission is to connect the past and the present Nikki Mom by celebrating our stories and what our babies have overcome. Whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago or whether you find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. Hi, mamas, and welcome back to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. It's your host, Martha and... Ashley. Ashley, it's so good to see you. I know. We didn't get to do this last week, so this is really fun. Yeah, although sometimes... You know, it, distance makes the heart grow fonder with our podcast audience. I, I hope that's the case anyway. <laughs> um, sometimes it, it was it was good. You know, I think that we do a good job, Ashley, of trying to model um, rest for others. I mean, we're really doing our best. So, but Amen. it's important to do. So it was it was good. But now we're ready. And as you know, mamas, we always have the opportunity to interview two types of guests. Sometimes we interview experts in the field of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders or obstetrics, and then sometimes we get the unique and splendid opportunity of interviewing Nikki moms, past and present, about their experiences, about their journeys, and it is our complete honor today to have Tiffany Hovelson on. Um, Tiffany, we've known since February, February, 2020, <laughs> like literally. Th- no, 2019. 2019? Yep. I literally lost a pre- whole year. Pre-COVID. Or wait, was it? Wait, was it? 2019. I'm trying to think. Because the pandemic because when did your girls come home in December 2019, Tiff? Yeah. This- uh, so- Finley came home. Yeah, she would have came home March of 2019. 2019. So it was 2020. Wow. It 20- had to be 2020. What? I know. We <laughs> lost- blame COVID. I have no sense of years. It has felt like two full years. I think it has felt. <gasps> but can you think about that? That was like three weeks before everything shut down. We had no idea at the time. It honestly yeah, that's was. wild. That's Ugh. wild. That's crazy, but it was fun. Um, we had a gallant. Okay, for everybody listening who wasn't <laughs> who wasn't there, uh, we had a Valentine's Day event where, and it happened during a snowstorm. So only a few wonderful people showed up. <laughs> one of whom was Tiffany, and we wrote little Valentine notes to, to moms in the NICU and got to hear about Tiffany's story and really fell mm-hmm. in love with her as a person and mm-hmm. chocolate covered strawberries and all that good thing. So, Tiffany, we're so glad that you're here. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really glad to be here. I uh, I've listened to the podcast and I've been following and supporting Dear Nikki Mama <laughs> ever since that day. Um, I have I just I think that it's an honor, and I pretty much just wear your clothes every day of my life. <laughs> I love it. I'm wearing it right now too. I don't know if you can see it. There we go. I'm not, but I'm also not wearing a bra either. So I don't think who needs bras. Those are stupid. I will. I will say that I think Tiff. It's been a long time coming. Coming Tiffany too. We've we've wanted to do this for a really long time, especially because your story has so many unique layers. But how you've kind of taken your journey and turned it into a way to advocate for your girls and yourself is is really special. Mm -hmm. And you also have such a unique journey in that. You're a twin mama, and both of your twin girls had very different Nikki journeys, but you also had a kid at home, and you had 
hundreds of miles in between the both of you at points. And so your journey has so many layers. And so we are actually going to be separating this episode into two parts so that each girl can kind of have their own episode. And so for part one, we get to hear all about your pregnancy and Miss Finley. So Tiffany, why don't we start there? And when did you find out that you were pregnant with the twins? And were you planning that or was it totally a surprise? So um, to have all of my children, we had to go through fertility treatment. Um, In vitro fertilization, IVF was our only option for conceiving children. And so um, we planned it. (laughs) We planned it down to the minute. (laughs) And um, so we found out on Father's Day of 2018 that the pregnancy took and that we were pregnant at the time. We didn't know that there were two. Um, <laughs> we did. We did transfer two embryos, and when we went in for our first visit, we found out that we were expecting twins, and wow. we were just overjoyed. I always wanted to have twins, and I wanted three kids. My husband wanted two, and I won. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no going back. Well, there's yeah, two in there. Yeah. <laughs> The math doesn't work. <laughs> I remember one of the first things I learned about you was just how much you loved your your son, Jackson, and how how uh, what a wonderful experience motherhood had been at that point too to really get to know him and love him. Um, so, how were you thinking that the transition would be from one to three, like that jump? I was so nervous. I. <laughs> I instantly fell in love with my son. Uh, I hated being pregnant with him. I was miserable. I didn't like feeling him move. I didn't like any of it. But the moment that he was born, I didn't know. We didn't find out the gender of any of our kids. And the moment he was born, I instantly fell in love with him. And I had never felt such love in my life ever before. Mm -hmm. And I was worried about how I could love another child like split that up or like multiply it. How do you, how do you have enough love for all of these children that are, that mean so much to you? And it was, it was a huge worry for me. In fact, I told my husband that Jackson was going to be in the delivery room when my girls were born (laughs) (laughs) because I had never spent a night away from him ever. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So because you were carrying twins, were you considered high risk from the beginning or was that not really an issue? You know, uh, every time you go through IVF, uh, you are considered some level of high risk. So you have a lot of early monitoring. Uh, You are on the progesterone injections for the first 12 weeks and they monitor you. I came in In the beginning, it was every week and then um, every couple of weeks. So after your first trimester, as long as things are going well, that's typically the point where you have a pretty normal um, doctor visit. Because I was carrying twins, it was a bit more high risk. And so I didn't have to see them often, more often yet. In fact, it was going to start, I was going to start seeing them more often, twice as often the next week, the next visit that I saw my doctor and which was the next day, uh, the girls were born and the next day would have been my next visit with my, with my OB. So, oh my goodness. 
So when did you know then that something wasn't right and you needed to get checked? Well, I didn't know that there was, I didn't know. I, I was shopping with Jackson all day. We were walking and he was trying to get me to buy every single toy in the store. (laughs) And when I wouldn't put it in the cart for him, he decided to push this ride on toy down the aisle. He said, well, if you're not going to get it, mom, I will push it to the checkout myself. (laughs) (laughs) And he only wanted me, my mom and my, my grandma were with me and I was having some like tightening in sure. my stomach. I, it didn't hurt. I didn't, it didn't feel timeable or that there was any issue with it. Just mm-hmm. I could, I watched my belly and, and it would contract a little bit. And so we went and we had dinner and I drank some water because I probably thought I was dehydrated and it just was happening more and more frequently. So then I called the on-call birthing center line. And they said, yeah, you probably just overdid it. Just go ahead and and drink lots of water for the next hour, put your feet up and rest. So I did. And when that hour was up and I had all that water, I had to go to the bathroom. And when I did, there was blood. Mm. And um, then I called them back and they said, yeah, you should probably get checked out. Mm. And still at that point, we didn't think that anything was wrong. We just thought, you know, something, something just got over, overworked. So, mm, right. Yeah. So we went home, we took our time, we put our ki- our son to bed and we drove to the hospital and I was reassuring my husband the whole drive there. I was like, it's fine. It's fine. We're going to be fine. We're going to come home tonight and everything will be fine. And so we got to the hospital and they put on the monitor and they said, well, I'm not seeing any contractions. And I said, well, great. That's exactly what we wanted to hear. And they told me, but you do have an irritable uterus. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thank you, medical yes. community. Yes. Thank you. It is a bit angry. <laughs> um, and so they left and she said that she, the nurse said that she had to go tell the on-call doctor within so many minutes of our arrival. And she came back and she said that the on-call doctor wanted to come in and just check me out. And I thought to myself, no, it's 9 p.m. The on-call doctor doesn't come in on a weekend to check you out if it means nothing. Mm-hmm. And you were how many weeks? I was 24 weeks exactly. Wow. And the doctor came in in record time. She was there. It was less than 10 minutes. Wow. And she was there. And she checked me and I was dilated to a five. Mm. And she said, Tiffany, you are in labor and we are going to admit you and try to stop your labor. And I said, "Um, no, I'm only 24 weeks. And she said, I understand but you, you are in labor and we have to admit you. Mm-hmm. And I had been having nightmares the weeks, the couple weeks prior that the girls were born early and that I, well, I didn't know they were girls, but, mm-hmm. um, that I, that I had them early and it was my greatest fear. You always wonder the what ifs, what's going to happen. And right. 
as any pregnant mom knows, you're always worried about the worst possible outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, that was me. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to make it to 38 weeks. And she almost laughed at me and she said, um, 28 weeks is a good goal. And I said, uh, no, 38 weeks. I'm going to make it to 38 weeks. And she admitted me. We got magnesium going. We got some steroids going. Mm-hmm. Magnesium. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a swear, it's a swear word. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it didn't work. She checked me an hour yeah. later and I had dilated another centimeter. Mm-hmm. They did an ultrasound to see which direction the babies were. Uh to see if they could even potentially let me deliver naturally. And Isla was breech. She was uh, baby A. Finley was baby B. And she was breech. So they were not going to let that happen. And she said, now's the time, Tiffany. We we have to take the babies out. And I said, mm-hmm. um, no, you said 28 weeks. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, that I said that was a good goal. Um, but if we wait any longer, if you dilate any more, they will basically fall out and mm-hmm. they could get stuck in the birthing canal and they will very likely die. And so in less than 10 minutes again, we were rushed into the ER and we did an emergency C-section. And it was the scariest moments of my life. Mm-hmm. I had the epidural started and the epidural didn't work. Mm-hmm. So I felt them cut me open. Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, and I obviously screamed from the pain. And my husband was not yet allowed in the ER. So all he or the ER, the OR, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> um, And so all he heard was me screaming and he said that it was Mm -hmm. the longest 10 minutes of his life. And he was so scared for my life Mm -hmm. and for the lives of our babies. And they took out Isla and they said something about male. And I was like, I knew it. I knew, I knew it was a boy. (laughs) And they took Finley out and she was born in her whole amniotic sac. Um, <gasps> they, they had to break oh. it outside of the womb. And of course we were in an emergency. And so I didn't get to see it. I didn't get oh. any pictures. My shoot. husband is the only one who has it burned in his mind. <laughs> oh, shoot. I know. How cool. If it's that rare, I wanted to see it. <laughs> right. Um, wow. And then they said, two girls. And I said, uh, wait a second. Somebody said male. <laughs> And Zach heard it too. It wasn't just me. And so it took me like, I think, two days to realize that I had twin girls. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't get to see them. They were put in their isolates and wrapped mm-hmm. in plastic. And uh, Isla was intubated right away. And Finley was on nasal cannula. Wow. That's pretty remarkable for, for 24. 24. Wow. Yeah, she eventually was intubated uh, the sure. next the next day, but uh, they decided to let her try it. So yeah, um, so I didn't get to see them. They were all the way on the other side of the room, and they were wheeled out. And then I went down to recovery. 
And were you, you were awake. Did you, did you feel like you were lucid the whole time? Like you were present and understanding what was happening? Hmm. Uh, yes, it was definitely overwhelming. There was a lot going on. Uh, but interesting that you ask that because at one point I was talking to my husband, trying to tell him that something didn't feel right. And, and it, it, he didn't seem to be listening to me (laughs) and it turns out I wasn't actually talking. Um, and I, uh, right after that, I blacked out Uh and, I think it was very short and he was asking the nurses to like, please help my wife. And he like got up out of the chair that they made him sit in and stepped out of the way. And then they screamed at him to sit down because they didn't want him to pass out in the OR. Oh my gosh. And he's like, I just, I'm trying to move out of the way so that you can help my wife. She's, she's not responding anymore. And I came back Mm. and I was very nauseous. I began throwing up. And uh, what happened was, is that I typically have a low blood pressure, um, Mm. like 90 over 60. And what happened is, is I lost a normal amount of blood for a C-section, but because my blood pressure runs so low, it dropped low enough that I blacked out. Hmm. And I didn't think to tell them that because, you know, a lot of things were going on at the time. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, right. And so everything was fine. I didn't need a transfusion or anything like that. My hemoglobin was a bit low, but we took some iron and that was that was that. So they wheeled me off to recovery and I said, okay, well, I want to go see my babies. And they said, well, you just came out of a major surgery, so you need to recover in recovery. And I said, um, no, life is not really about me right now. So if you could just like throw me in a chair and wheel me in the NICU, that'd be great. <laughs> um, and they said that I needed to be able to stand on my own. And that really annoyed me. The last epidural that I had, I had got it at like 2 or 4 p.m. And by 5 a.m. the next day, I still couldn't walk by myself. Oh, my gosh. And so I said, over my dead body, I will sit here until morning and not see my babies. And so I willed my feet to move. I I stared at them and I made my toes move. And they were born at 1217 and 1218 a.m. And by 2 a.m., I was in a chair wheeling myself to the NICU. (laughs) Um, And I sat there with them. And I listened to all the things the nurses had to say, and I just I, I took everything in. I was I was quite stunned and, and overwhelmed naturally. And they said, "You need to go get some rest." And I said, "You obviously have not been a NICU mom because I'm not going anywhere." Mm-hmm. And I pretty much lived in there for the first several days, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't sleep. There was so much adrenaline rushing through my body and and so I stayed. When when you saw them for the first time and if I'm remembering correctly you were in um kind of like a a, a group room, right, where there were isolates in in a, in a large space. Yes, we kind of call it that fishbowl. Mm-hmm. Um right. there's curtains between everybody. Right. And so when you walk in there, I mean, it's so overwhelming because not only are you taking in and trying to, you know, okay, where are my babies? What am I looking at? But then also of a sudden, like you're seeing all of these babies in all different stages and, and with some with their parents, some are not. 
how was that? Because you were in a very fragile and vulnerable space just coming out of this delivery. You know, honestly, it is all such a blur. Yeah. Um, I don't honestly remember seeing my my daughters for the first time. Mm-hmm. I remember when I look at pictures. Right. I, I, I remember those instances. Um, I remember... Th- just instantly having to learn everything. You yeah. know, they try they try to prepare you as they're preparing for the C-section, telling you that this is kind of what happens when when kids are born at 24 weeks and this is this is what they'll look like when you when you get in there. And so I knew that they would have lines coming out of their belly button. I knew that they would have the blue lights on and they said that they'd have their eyes covered and probably their ears covered and and they did. Um, it was a lot, but the second you get into the NICU, you're instantly learning a whole new, a whole new, whole new way of life, a whole new a set of circumstances. And so, the instant you walk in, they're teaching you how to scrub and wash your hands for right. two minutes up to your elbows with no jewelry on, and and that is honestly the thing that I remember most was being terrified to get them sick with anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you, when, when was their due or when were they born? What month? They were born in November. So that's like also prime cold and flu season. So I'm sure that was, didn't help the anxiety or worry about illness. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't really let anybody see them or visit them. And I, I isolated a lot as I know a lot of NICU moms do. Mm-hmm. It was hard cutting my family out because they they didn't have the same care as I did mm-hmm. for for the fragility that yeah. was my was my daughter's lives, mm-hmm. and they just didn't understand what small little germ could do to my daughters. Yeah, and so the first day we did um, we did basically a revolving door. My husband walked them in. They didn't get to touch anything. They pretty much just got to look at them, say they met them, and then most of them never saw them again during their entire their hospital stay. Yeah. I mean, and that's like such a strong – I mean, depending on, on your relationship with family too – it can be a real pivot for them because I feel like as you as the NICU mom, it becomes really clear what you have to do, right? But the relationships can can change as well. Um, did you find it easy to have those conversations or challenging to have those conversations with family? I mean, setting boundaries is hard no matter what, but... Setting boundaries is hard. And thankfully for me, we were at Essentia in Fargo and the nurses there were just truly incredible. And they were more than willing to take on the blame for (laughs) allowing or not allowing visitors. So we had two people aside from two two or three people that aside from Zach and I that were able to go visit them and they could only visit when we were there. When Isla got transferred, um, we were allowed to designate one person who was allowed to go up there without us so that Finley didn't have to be all alone. Sure. And I know we'll kind of get into this, especially in part two, but you know, you have a son at home. And so, and you talked about that really close, really close relationship with him. So what was it like to 
not only bring in two new girls, but also to split your time so significantly so quickly? Well, I was grateful for the schedule and life that we had pre-birth of the girls. Jackson was in daycare and I was working full-time. So Jackson continued to go to daycare. In the mornings, I would drop him off. I would drive to the hospital. I would stay all day like it was my job because Mm -hmm. it was. (laughs) Yeah. And then when it was time for daycare pickup, I would go pick him up and I would spend the evening with him. And some nights I would go back up to the NICU after bedtime. And other nights I would stay home, even though that was really hard too. Yeah. Yeah. And on the weekends, it was... It was the hardest because mm-hmm. we were used to spending the weekends with him. That's really his his real time with us. Mm-hmm. And I was desperate to be there for my girls. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of split that. We split that up a bit. Uh, oftentimes we were home with Jackson and we would go, one of us would go during his nap time or one of us would stay and one of us would go. And then of course at bedtime on the weekends, that's that's often when we would visit the girls. And I mean, I suppose, how old was Jackson when the girls were born? Jackson was June, July, August, September, October. He was 17 months old. Okay. Actually, Mm -hmm. 16 months old because it was the beginning of November. Mm. So he was 16 months old. It was a little closer than we had planned. (laughs) And we thought it was close to begin with. But we went through IVF that soon because of insurance issues. Mm -hmm. Um, My insurance didn't cover it. My husband's did. And in order to get me on, we had to sign up at a specific time of the year. And then we wanted to get off of it as soon as possible. So as soon as my care transferred to OB and not uh, fertility medicine, reproductive medicine, then, then we could cancel it. And it was very expensive. So that's why we did it that soon. And then the girls just decided, let's just make it even shorter. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of love, by the way, like the finagling and magic tricks that uh, American couples need to do to get IVF. (laughs) I mean, like, that's just crazy. So I, I mean, that's a whole part of the journey too, right? So I, getting your kiddos here, um, getting pregnant at all is part of the journey as well. So how did you, how, how did that play into it? Cause I know sometimes I, cause I, we had to do fertility stuff too at the beginning. And I kind of felt like, are you kidding me? I fought so hard to get to this point and now I'm going to do this part too. Are you kidding? Like, are you seriously joking right now? Was there any feeling like that? 100%. I, I thought, okay, we got through the hard stuff. Right. The, the worst part of it is over. I've I've had enough. And then and then I get this too for real. And I I kept pleading with well, I was very angry with God and um I kept pleading, please don't also let me go through the death of a child. I've I've been through enough. Yeah. yeah. And you think I can't go through one more thing except you always do. And it doesn't make it any easier, but it just, you just, you just keep going. Your love keeps you going. Yeah. Well, and I wondered too, if you'd be willing to share, because, you know, we talk a lot about bonding and sometimes how that takes time. And, you know, when you met Jackson, you said there was like this instant love 
connection. And obviously you had that with your girls because you were in there two hours after you had a major surgery, (laughs) you know, so your love is undeniable. But I wonder, you know, how is it bonding with the girls, especially, you know, splitting your time between the two of them and getting to know the both of them in such a critical care setting? I mean, what was the bonding aspect like for you initially? Non-existent. Mm -hmm. It was... It's honestly the hardest thing for me to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm finally to a good place and they're two and a half years old. I'm finally to, I finally feel like I'm in a good place in the NICU. I couldn't touch them. I couldn't hold them. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything for them. I couldn't, I couldn't fix this for them. And I, I did love them. But I didn't feel it all throughout my body the way that I did with my son. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't feel it. Didn't overwhelm my soul. It. It felt. It felt. What's the word I'm trying to think of? Martha, save me. It's like, um, uh, like. It's like animalistic instinct. Sure. You know. I. I, I didn't. That's. That's what it was like. It. It just. Mm-hmm. It was instinct to protect your child. Right. Um, and that's all I was doing. I was, yeah. I was making sure that I did everything humanly possible totally, to keep them alive. And I, I was, I know that I loved them. Mm-hmm. I, I know that I love them. I always mm-hmm. have. Yeah. And it took a very long time uh, mm-hmm. until recently to realize that I was numb. I yeah. didn't, I didn't feel anything. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't feel a bond or a connection with my kids because it was there from the moment they were born. It was there and I couldn't feel it because I didn't feel anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think, uh, and I was kind of, I'm sorry. I literally lost the word. I was like, is there a good word for it? It's like a, I know exactly what you mean. And it's almost, it's like a hollowness, right? Because your body is like, nope, we actually don't have time for that right now because you're too busy being, being terrified. So um, you need to do that now. And then like in a couple of years after a lot of therapy and a lot of Tazo <laughs> lemon loaf tea, um, uh, please sponsor us Tazo tea. Um, but it, then you can talk about that. But I think like you, it's instinctual. Like, just like you said, because you're in fight or flight, you literally become like an animal. Like that's all you can do is like, you're like, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we're just going to get through the day. And like, let's not even start talking about the pumping part of it. Did you pump, (sighs) Tiffany? I pumped every day Mm -hmm. for an entire year. I stopped pumping. My last pump was on their first birthday. Good. I love that. Happy birthday to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done now. <laughs> um yeah, so I I planned to pump until they would not need my milk. So I was so thankful that one my one more thing was not a poor milk supply. I right. I had I had a pretty healthy supply. I pumped next to my girls every single chance. If it made the medical personnel uncomfortable, that was their problem. I didn't care if the curtain was pulled. I didn't (laughs) care if I was covered up. I mean, I certainly tried to do those things, but the doctor would come over and start talking and he'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'll come back later. And I said, no, I want to hear what you have to say. Stand stand right there. You're a doctor. Like this could be nothing for you. (laughs) Well, also it's like, I know I'm sure other people do this, but it's like, 
like, okay, I, it takes like 15 minutes to pump. It takes 15 minutes to clean off the parts or whatever. I'm not going to miss rounds because you don't want to look at my boobs, okay? <laughs> First of all, you should be so lucky. You should be so lucky to see Tiffany's boobs. Okay. <laughs> Amen. Well, and I'm so glad and I'm so honored, I should say, that you were so vulnerable about that because I think that's um there's a level of shame that comes with that for many of us in the NICU community is that uh you expect to have this like moment of you know, like instant love. And you're right. It's always there, but our bodies almost don't allow us to feel it. And so I'm so grateful that you shared that because to the moms listening who are in the NICU and don't feel that yet, know that it's there. Your body's just doing everything it can to protect you and there's nothing wrong with you. And so I just want to say thank you for sharing that because I know for many of us, there's that level of shame that comes with, why am I not feeling more you know, and it's there. It's just our bodies are protecting us. So, yeah. And I'll definitely talk a little bit more about that later. I had a different yeah. experience bonding with each one of my girls right. in a different way. Yeah. Um, and that most of that happened after their NICU stays. And so, right. um, it sometimes takes work when your body is so numb or hollow, as Martha said, you, you feel like it's not there. And there is a lot of shame in like, how could I not love my child? It's my child after all. I'm here fighting for their life. And you have to take the steps to train your body, um, to let your body feel. And that takes effort. And in the beginning, you don't have the energy for that. And so it's not instantaneous. But the love and the bond that I've grown with my girls – I wouldn't trade it for the world. Mm-hmm. It's really grown into something special and beautiful. And it didn't happen the way that I expected it, the way that I wanted it to happen. But it's there. And mm-hmm. I am so grateful. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. I feel like why would it – you know what I mean? I think it is beautiful. And that bond happens instantaneously for some. But some moms, even, I mean, even without the NICU or birth trauma, right? Like, why wouldn't it be different than any other relationship on the planet, which is about practice and intention, right? Um, And I think in some ways, when you have to, like, fight for the relationship with your child, it's it's like really beautiful in its own different way. Like, it it really isolates it as something completely different and special. Um, Well, and you kind of have to get to know your children in like two very different settings. Like when they're in the NICU, you're in like a very sterile, like medical environment, right? right? And then you come home and you're all of a sudden in this like home environment. And so it's like you're learning to bond with your baby in two very different settings. So, I mean, it's the bond. We should just have an episode about bonding. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've been meaning to do that one for a Tiffany while. Will come back. Yeah, Tiffany can come back for the round Yeah, there table. we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's the thing is that it may have not happened the way that I wanted it to or that some other moms wanted it to, but every day that you try, every day that you work on building that relationship, you're showing your child how much that means to you. You're showing them that they're important in that way and every way and that you're always willing to go there for them. And they they receive that differently 
as they age and as they, you know, come home from the hospital. And so it's still beautiful. It's just different. Yeah, absolutely. That's so wise. So speaking of how each child is so different and our experiences with them are different, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Miss Finley and what she was like, you know, from day one with Finley to, to graduation. What was your experience with her? <laughs> Finley. <laughs> Finley is a force of nature. <laughs> she truly is. Uh, that first day I told you she was on nasal cannula. Mm -hmm. She hated that tube from the beginning. <laughs> she didn't like anything. She didn't like anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you talked too close to her isolate, there was too much light coming into her isolate. Right. Um, pretty much anything that made Finley the slightest level of uncomfort, uh, she would immediately drop her stats. She would bear down. She would cry. She she would let you know. And the doctor's like, no. No, it's fine. We can do rounds. I can talk as loud as I want, right? Her <laughs> isolate. And then she would, Brady, and, you know, I told you so. Um, mm -hmm. Finley, Finley was is a force of nature. She has an attitude like no other and it serves <laughs> her well. It is truly the reason that I believe she survived the NICU. She mostly had an uneventful stay. She went through what typical 24-weekers uh, would go through, I guess, in the best case scenario. She had issues breathing. She needed a surfactant in the beginning to try and help her. For the longest time, they told me that Finley's lungs were sicker and that it would take longer for her to recover, that her lungs just were not ready. And she was slow and she was steady and she made her progress much like I think about the turtle and the hare. She was certainly the turtle, but she still won the race. There was no there was no big things with her. We had a couple of scares with her the newborn screen, the, the different genetic stuff that they test for, coming mm -hmm. back as uh potentially positive, I guess. And then they did another test and it came back even higher. And then they ruled it out and said she didn't have it. And that was ADH. And I can't for the life of me remember what that stands for. But um, basically, they said that she could have been misidentified her gender and that she could actually have been a boy. And there was there was the whole thing. Oh my gosh, that's so that's a lot of information mm -hmm. to take in. Yeah, and so she the re, the other reason they thought that she might have had this ADH was because she was needing an excessive level of sodium in her TPN. Uh, the doctor prescribed me a diet of salty French fries because <laughs> they could not figure out why her sodium was so low and she was getting so much. And eventually it just kind of worked itself out. She just kept growing and eventually eating. And, and she spent 129 days mm. 
in the NICU. She spent a very long time learning how to feed. Mm-hmm. A very, very long time. In fact, as she neared 40 weeks gestation, she they started talking to me that if she didn't start showing some progress, we would have to consider a G-tube. And I was like, uh, no, you can send her home with an NG tube. And they said, we don't do that. And I said, well, I beg to differ because I know a lot of moms in my NICU support groups whose children came home with an NG tube. So you can probably figure it out. Um, and we were in such a rush to get her home. Yeah. Our, our favorite doctor was leaving the NICU and that was really hard on us. And... So I really wanted her to eat and I wanted her to come home and I wanted him to be the one to, to be able to discharge her. And so it happened very quickly, very fast. And she had one full day or maybe one and a half days of getting at least 80% of her feeds in. And they pulled her tube and they sent her home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, like miss thing down to the wire. Yeah. Um, it was absolutely terrifying. So she came home on a quarter liter of oxygen. Okay. And she didn't really have much else going on. She was on some diuretics uh, when she first came home. And feeding was a living nightmare. A living nightmare. We fed her every two hours in order to keep her growing. She was on fortified breast milk. Wow. And she would take 45 minutes every two hours to finish two ounces, 60 mils of milk. And by the time Mm -hmm. you're done with that, it's like wash the bottle and almost barely time to start again. Start all over. And then, you know, you add pumping into that whole scenario. Oh, yeah. And, and I, God, God forbid the two-year-old wake up. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was pretty much not eating. I wasn't taking care of myself. I, I took care of my baby and I pumped and I took care of my baby again. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I would go see Isla. At one point we had Finley in Fargo, Isla in Minneapolis, four hours away, and then Jackson at home. And so having Finley home was a relief, but it came with a lot of stress. The feeding was so difficult. And at one point, uh, she was taking in so little that we had to take her into the ER because she was so dehydrated. And I was hoping, I was hoping that they would admit my child that just came home from the NICU. Yeah. Because I wanted them to give her an NG tube. I wanted them to give it to her so badly I could shake them. And the ER doctor basically just laughed at me. And he said, she might be a little dehydrated, but her fontanelle isn't even sunken in. And I said, so we're going to wait until her head is sunken in before we say she's dehydrated? She just came home from the NICU. Sometimes I think that like NICU NICU is like such a special thing. And so when people like are confronted with like tiny precious babies, they're like, this is the same as a 42-year-old man. I'm going to treat it the same. (laughs) And so he said, well, I, I suppose we could give her some fluids. 
And I said, okay, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he didn't talk about admitting her. He didn't, he didn't do anything. So I actually had the personal phone number of the neonatologist that, that was our favorite doctor in the NICU. And while we were in the ER at the same hospital, I called him and asked him what I should do. And we came up with a new plan all our own. And go you. And, and we just we just didn't listen to that that ER doctor because I told him I think that it's reflux and she's in pain. She hates mm-hmm. eating. She cries every single time. Right. And he said, All babies have reflux. Oh my all. gosh. Diagnosing babies with reflux is like the biggest joke, he said. Mm-hmm. Oh, Girl, have you been to the 10th floor? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, so just like give me some meds and send me home because I don't really want to talk yeah, to you. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so he didn't. And we immediately scheduled an appointment with a pediatrician and I needed somebody to listen to me. Yeah. And we finally got her on reflux meds. And a few weeks later, feeding finally wasn't so miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and it's, I think it's so remarkable that like, it, I've heard, you know, obviously family story is specific and unique to her, but like this idea that I think so many women are, if after coming home from the NICU, so many deal with this reflux issue, like, because it's, it's a, it's a function of prematurity, right? Like this thing. And so the fact that you've been told like, oh yes, it's this, it's this, and this, you become the expert in your daughter, right? So then to kind of step out in the world and soon after have someone in the medical community say, no, I don't think so. I think it's really kind of remarkable that you stood up and you were like, "Mm, I don't think so. I'm advocating for my child. I'm stepping away. I'm finding a different provider. I'm going to do my own path for this. I mean, that's a pretty strong instinct that I don't think every NICU mom has right away. Well, and so this is the part that I was referencing to with the bonding is I was basically force feeding my kid because I was desperate for her not to be dehydrated and for her to grow. She had just come home into my care. I was now solely responsible for her and she was dehydrated from not getting enough sustenance. And I am going to be really vulnerable here, but my husband and I, we both told her on countless occasions that we hated her. Um, those first few days when she came home, those first few weeks, she wouldn't eat. All she did was cry. She cried seven hours a day. Seven mm-hmm. hours a day. I had no idea. I was there every waking minute that I possibly could be there in the NICU. And she wasn't like that. And she came home and all she did was cry. She wouldn't eat. She was a living nightmare. Mm-hmm. And all I, I cried. I called a friend and former NICU nurse of mine. And I said, I, I was in tears. I was bawling. I said, I, I can't do this. I can't take care of her. I can't, I, I don't even want to look at her. I, I, I want to throw her out the front door. And I, I physically had to leave her in another room, which for me, I, begged every single day. I asked every single day, when is my baby coming home? When can I take her home? I just, I need her home. And she came home and I couldn't handle it. And I felt like the biggest failure in the entire world. Mm. And then that friend of mine, she came over and she took Finley from my arms and she held her and she stopped crying. And I was so grateful. And also 
it hurt so much that I couldn't do that for her. I couldn't fix that for her. She was feeling all of those things that I was feeling and she couldn't calm down. And I learned that it takes a village and that it doesn't always have to be me. Yeah. And yeah. And it allowed me to just take a breath and to calm down myself and to take care of myself. And yeah. that was the first step yes. of me that I needed to do to take care of myself and be the best mom that I could be for my girls. Yeah. What you just said right there, that's profound. Yeah. Like that is what you said about the village and that you needed to be able to receive help and have time for you to be able to bond and really be the best mom you can be. That's profound. Yeah. Well, and there are so many people out there that they, they want to know how can you help a friend who has a NICU baby or who just brought their NICU baby home. And my, I was blessed to have a few good friends who I don't know how they knew or, or if they just got lucky, but she came over and she did that and she held Finley and she gave me a minute and then she washed all of my dishes and my pump mm. parts for me. Bless her. <laughs> Seriously, you are like my savior right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she just, she talked to me and I got to talk to a, a living adult human being. Right. right. Yeah. And yeah. it was everything I didn't realize that I needed. Yeah. 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 yeah Cause I, it's so true. I mean, you have these thoughts and like you say, you, you're how it is such a total mind F to go through infertility, to fight through a NICU stay, to beg for them to come home. They come home and then your brain is like, this is awful. I hate this so much. And you just think I must be a disgusting human being. There's so much shame in it. And it is incredibly, I guess, Normal is not the right word because we've been through very abnormal circumstances. You've been through really abnormal circumstances, but it would be expected behavior from what we we have to go through, right? And any human being who suffers this much trauma, like to get to this point and then no sleep, like every two hours, you're doing this whole rigmarole and the pump. Don't even get me started on that stupid funnel or like the little tiny yellow pieces. I lost so many of those in the garbage disposal. I literally... Some house in Moorhead has like 30 of those down the drain. Um, but it is so we, – we don't even voice it aloud. So I think about the permission that your friend gave you. And she had that special kind of knowledge, right, because she was a NICU nurse too, to like um, kind of have – to show you this vulnerable really side, side of yourself that you were ashamed about and say, no, it's okay. Like that's huge. Mm-hmm. And that's formative. I don't think what you said, anybody else has ever said on the podcast before. So I really applaud you for being so brave because it's a scary thing to say out loud. Mm-hmm. It is. It's very scary. And there, there is so much shame. And, and I think it's not unique to NICU moms, but it is right. certainly a, a greater challenge with the trauma that you've been through, but, yeah. but feeling like a failure, you're constantly worried. Am I doing enough? Am I, am I doing right by my child Mm -hmm. and it's a lot yeah and so talking about that bonding how do you build a bond with a child when you can't even stand to be in the same room with them but there were moments there were moments with Finley and 
I'm not advocating by any means for you to uh, not listen to the advice of the American Pediatric Association for Safe Sleep and all of that. But I will say that the only thing that helped Finley sleep at night and helped her, helped me bond with her, she slept on my chest. We, we once slept for six hours. Mia reclined on the couch and her on my chest. And it was the best night of sleep that she had in, in weeks and days. And it was the best sleep that I had. I woke up in a panic and I woke up to this sweet baby on my chest and I burst into tears. Like this was everything that I always wanted. And she's right here. Yeah. I don't know if I've teared up this much in an episode for a while. <laughs> I texted my husband halfway through. I was like, you need to bring me a LaCroix now. <laughs> so I guess I guess my best advice is you have to do what's best for you. And and for, you know, we had talked about encouragement for other moms who have older kids or just other moms who have gone through that something similar. And that's my greatest advice is you have to do what's best for you. There is no right answer there is no best answer you just you choose the 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 least worst option i guess <laughs> um because we we had so many different options having kids in three different places and you know i'll i'll talk much more about it but a week after finley came home we had this traumatic thing happen with isla and um Truly, you just have to do what's best for you. And for us, it was keeping Jackson's schedule as close to the same as possible and keeping him in daycare. And it, it, that that holds true for literally everything in raising tiny humans is no kid is exactly the same. Every kid needs something different. Every mom needs something different. And you just have to try something. And if it works, you do you, mama. Just you do you. Yeah. Amen. I love the turn that this episode took so much. Yeah. This is so beautiful. Well, Tiffany, you have shared some gems of wisdom today and your vulnerability is astounding. And we're just so grateful for what you've brought today and for wearing your heart on your sleeve so beautifully. And I know both Martha and I are grateful for it. And I know that the moms in our sisterhood will be too. And so thank you so much for being so vulnerable and the best part is that we get you for another episode. <laughs> so folks, this is only part one of Tiffany's remarkable NICU journey. And so we will be back next week with part two. Um, but as a close, we just want to affirm that to the mamas who don't feel that bond right now or who are struggling to feel that bond right now, we first of all just want to say that you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you and that that bond exists and you will find it. So know that there's no shame, that you are loved just as you are, and your baby knows and feels your love. So we will be back next week for part two. Thank you so much for tuning in with us for part one. If you love this podcast and would like to hear more amazing stories, please consider becoming a member of the Dear NICU Mama Patreon page. In addition to special merchandise and early access to content, Patreon members support the mission, programs, and services of Dear NICU Mama. You can find the link on the description of this episode. As always, if you'd like to hear more from Dear NICU Mama, click subscribe. Welcome to the sisterhood.